Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. And we've got some fascinating guests this week. Dan O'Donoghue speaks to Manchester MP Afzal Khan to find out why he's called a parliamentary debate on the scourge of Islamophobia in society and some of the horrendous personal experiences he's had as a politician. I've had uh, many threats, including threats which I needed to then report to the police, uh, which then also resulted in people being found guilty. And and then the one which sticks out for me personally is uh, when the second time around I was elected as member of parliament and you give oath. And when I was taking the oath, I did oath in English, and then I also took an oath in Urdu, my mother tongue, and I got hundreds and hundreds of tweets, uh, which was abusive, you know. And in our latest look around the north, we'll be speaking to Lancashire local democracy reporter Robbie MacDonald to find out the five things you need to know about politics in his part of the Red Rose County. Lancashire local districts haven't yet been able to agree uh, a, can, a consensus for what they want. I think there's I think it's 15 boroughs or 12 boroughs in Lancashire. So there's a lot of district leaders and a lot of mayors and elected leaders who all have their opinions. And it has been hard to get an agreement. The government's keen for them to come up with a, a new deal. And it will be interesting to watch how that pans out because there will be winners and losers. But first, let's talk about what's going on with our vital health services in the north of England. The worst of the pandemic is, we hope, past, and COVID-19 is no longer leading the news agenda. But if you talk to NHS leaders, they'll tell you about their fears for a horrendous winter ahead in A&Es, waiting rooms and GP surgeries around the country. A recent piece in the Manchester Evening News had the worrying headline describing the local picture. Patients on trolleys and corridors, kids with weak immune systems filling A&E, and GPs who can't give you answers. So let's talk to Helena Vesti, the MEN's NHS social care and patients writer and the author of that piece to find out what's going on. Helena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Rob. Not a problem at all. It's great to have you on. So let's just set the scene with what's going on with the local NHS. What What is the problem at the moment and what, why are things so bad at the moment? So there's a few things to say on this. I think it's important to start with the fact that there's pressures right across the system at the moment, whether that's in general practice, where doctors are struggling with their regular workload, along with multiple vaccine schemes that they're having to roll out at the moment, or A&E, we're we're looking there and seeing that ambulance services have a lot of challenges because of the sheer number of patients, which is leading to a scarcity of beds. And then we look to more specific disciplines like paediatrics and maternity, both of which have been crying out for help, either because of the high numbers of sick children and shortages of midwives, respectively. Across the board, you're looking at a lot of pressure and increasingly exhausted and weary staff, which can can be a real difficulty. To touch on some of the points raised in my piece that I wrote, it it really starts with a a sheer number of patients, the likes of which we haven't really seen before. And and there's a number of reasons for that. Number one is, is COVID 
doctors are constantly reminding me in my anecdotal conversations with them that this pandemic isn't over. You've got a lot of patients who are still being hospitalised, still being severely stricken with the virus. Add to that, you've got your regular winter respiratory viruses that we would see every year. But unfortunately, because we've been socially isolated for the best part of two years, that we've only really started to see one another again. People are getting more sick than they were before because their immune system hasn't had that opportunity to mingle with some of the viruses, some of the bugs that it would normally keep at bay. So people are coming down with worse colds than ever. Many of us have had that real freak bug that's been working its way around our friendship groups this September and October. Because of that, hospitals, GP surgeries are getting filled with patients needing help. They're in the right place for help. Their illnesses are severe enough that they're going to A&E and that is the right place for them. But there's just more people than ever needing treatment. And what that leads to in the sort of NHS flowchart at the moment, if you like, is an overload in diagnostics. So testing isn't happening as fast because, you know, there's more people than ever needing x-rays on their lungs for example and doctors aren't able to tell people what's wrong with them as quickly and therefore get the right treatments for them those delays result in worse symptoms people tend to get worse if they're not being treated and then they end up needing more severe treatment at the end of that so whether that's them ending up in A&E or ending up on a ward they're having more inpatient treatment because They might have delayed going to the doctor during COVID, so their symptoms are worse, or they're facing these delays in diagnostics, which is overall raising their acuity. Combined with that, more people in hospital, that means fewer beds. And that's when you see things like people on corridors, on trolleys, people being treated outside A&E in ambulances. If you like, that's the that's the emergency side of hospitals at the moment. You've also got the regular side of hospital treatment, which is all of the elective surgeries, heart surgeries, lung surgeries, cancer surgeries that have built up over time because some of them weren't able to be done during the coronavirus pandemic for obvious reasons. So surgeons are having to play catch up with that side of things as well. And it's all put in quite an intense strain on the same number of staff. There's only so many people who are popping up this workforce and they're doing more work than, this is what they're telling me, more work than they've ever done before. To, to sort of end the patient journey through hospital, you've also got a lot of problems at the moment with discharging patients, whether that's because they're taking longer to treat, so they're not moving through hospital quite as quickly as they would have done pre-pandemic, or because you've got shortages with staff in social care, which has not been helped by staff leaving due to the mandatory vaccine policy. Finally, you've got a seniority issue, which has been flagged by some of the health bosses across Greater Manchester, that there's simply not enough staff with the level of seniority needed to discharge patients sometimes, which means they spend longer in hospital. So there's a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties that the NHS are trying to manage. I mean, obviously, like any system, it's made up of people, human beings with, with human frailties and human feelings. I mean, how are the staff feeling that you're speaking to are they on, on a personal level? Are they, are they struggling to sort of cope with everything? Obviously, I have just explained in quite a long winded way some of the some of the issues that they're facing at the moment. It seems complicated to a layperson and it even seems complicated to the people who 
are in the thick of it even they're saying everywhere we look there just seems to be another problem there's a real sense of exhaustion and genuine concern that things will go wrong for patients because it's just so busy that they're asking what happens if things get missed what happens if things become unsafe we have a responsibility to care for our patients and at the moment we don't think we can do that safely I've heard that from multiple doctors whether it's in general practice or in secondary care in hospitals and there's also a level of frustration because there's such a gulf with what doctors are seeing on the ground what's in front of them they're crying out that this is the busiest period on record that they've worked in their 20 year long careers versus what politicians are saying which the line is that pressures on the NHS are sustainable and in recent weeks Professor Chris Whitty said that the NHS is a is a resilient organisation and from what I've been told by one doctor the NHS is only resilient because its staff are going over and above to make sure that people get the right care if she said staff ceased to work at the point until which they were paid the NHS would fold within hours with the level of stress that's that it's that it's undergoing at the moment so there's a there's a lot of sort of resentment I think building and frustration and exhaustion and I think people are really bracing themselves for the winter they're saying it's overwhelming but they're taking it day by day just because there's no other sort of way to get through it. In terms of the time frame that we're, we're looking at I mean obviously the winter coming and that we're just coming into is going to be tough but do we think that by is the consensus from the doctors that you speak to that by the summer things will be better or is it or is it a longer term problem than that? Yeah there's been a a lot of talk about time frames people are really concerned that we're in this position and it's only November when usually the kind of real pressure points in the system generally hit around January February time we're months away from that and already doctors are saying that this is a really bad winter in November and they've not even really hit the the real stresses in earnest. One GP was, was telling me that he feels like summer is the time, next summer is the time when things will really start to sort of look up. People will have had their vaccines and their boosters so we might be seeing the the effects of that in a positive way. Less people coming to hospital with COVID, which is still taking up a good chunk of beds at the moment. Obviously, people will be more socialised at that point as well. So you might see less severe viruses going around. People will require less treatment for that. And there'll have been this period of catch up where all of the surgeries that weren't happening during lockdown have now started to happen. Hospitals are doing things like putting on extra clinics where they get through lots of surgeries on a Saturday, for example, that weren't able to be done a few months ago. It's a sense that time is kind of healing all wounds at the moment. They just need a few months and hopefully by the summer, some of these pressures will have abated slightly. I guess we can't talk about NHS and the healthcare systems without talking about social care is there inextricably linked and obviously the government came up with a plan of sorts to try and fix the social care crisis the funding crisis uh, earlier this year i mean how is the crisis in social care impacting on on, on health care in, in greater manchester as far as you can tell as i mentioned earlier social care is suffering from serious shortages and has been for a long time these are historic they've not been helped by people leaving due to vaccine mandates but there's really not enough staff to cope with the amount of people who are needing social care and 
that's just compounded by people who are now leaving the hospital with more complex needs, either because they've had more severe illnesses, they're leaving with long COVID, for example, and are unable to do the things that they used to be. And that creates a lot more demand on the social care system, because after all, social care isn't just care homes, it's any alterations you might need on your house, stair lifts, for example, or packages of care based in the home, and you need nurses to do that. And simply, there's just not the staff in the system to cater for that. I think also it's worth mentioning that when people are being discharged from hospitals into care homes, the process is a lot slower than it might have been before the pandemic because there's all sorts of rules around isolation and people have to be very careful about staying in one room for 14 days, for example. And that just tends to make the system move slightly slower than it otherwise would. And it's more difficult to get people discharged out from hospital into social care for those two sort of broad reasons, COVID and staffing. And I I think the sort of long-term change that you mentioned there, how are we going to fix the social care system, is, is something that is a question right across healthcare again, as much as GPs and doctors are saying that they're hoping that things will be slightly easier by the summer. Something that everybody is saying is that we're we're really after some long-term change here and what that looks like is creating attractive offers to bring new staff into the into the workforce midwives for example have been campaigning for their bursary to be reinstated to attract new students people have been campaigning over pay for junior doctors for a long time and I I think there's a real sense that medical staff think that if there's just not enough people within the system to cope with the amount of patients you know what are the steps to to change that and I think largely it's about recruitment and getting people in training from the time that they're leaving college and attracting them to working for the NHS and and they're saying at the moment there's just not that attraction there and, and there really needs to be. The short term issues that need to be addressed but also these more systemic long-term problems that decision makers are trying to get a handle on. I think all good reasons why the NHS and our healthcare systems will be likely moving up the news agenda in the weeks and months to come. Helena Vesti, thank you so much for taking us through what's going on in Greater Manchester. And now let's hear from our main guest this week. Home Office statistics show that more than 45% of religiously motivated hate crime in England and Wales have been targeted at Muslims in the past year. In recent months, there have been attacks or planned attacks on mosques in Manchester, East London and Scotland. And last week, we heard harrowing testimony from former Yorkshire cricketer Azim Rafiq about racism in sport. On Wednesday, to mark Islamophobia Awareness Month, Manchester MP Afsal Khan held a Westminster Hall debate on an issue which blights British society. Afsal joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here for the first time. I suppose, could you perhaps just start by explaining to our listeners how much of an issue Islamophobia still is in British society? Well, I think your figures have shown uh, that racism uh, exists in our society, sadly. Um, But we've also seen these figures, and these are government figures which point out that the community which is suffering the most is the Muslim community. 
Uh, we have some 3 million Muslims who have been here for a long time, who are part and parcel of the society, who contribute in every walk of life. Uh, and yet, because of this prejudice and this discrimination, um, they are experiencing. And sadly, sometimes it goes to the extreme end. Uh, mostly, you will see it on the social media, on the Twitter, and medias like that. But they do turn into the reality in real life. Uh, and this week and the last week, we saw actually in sport, uh, Azim, who, who was a cricketer in Yorkshire, with so much potential and the impact of this discrimination, this homophobic bias that exists, had on his life, his family's life, his career. And that, I think, is a one example. Your debate on Wednesday was uh, very well attended and a lot of MPs spoke very powerfully. Um, some of them spoke movingly about some of the experiences that they had had. I wondered if, if you yourself had ever come up against prejudice and abuse uh, in, in your day-to-day -day life. Um, I have, I have. Um, but, you know, I always also look at it in the positive sense. Uh, and positive sense is this. You know, I, I love Britain, uh, despite all these difficulties. You know, this is a country I enjoy. I love Manchester. I, I love being a member of parliament for, for Manchester Gorton. So for me, you know, I've had lots of positive experiences as well. But there are actually this side, which is the negative. Uh, I've had uh, many threats, including threats which I needed to then report to the police, uh, which then also resulted in people being found guilty. And then the one which sticks out for me personally is uh, when the second time around I was elected as member of parliament and you give oath. And when I was taking the oath, I did oath in English. And then I also took an oath in Urdu, my mother tongue. And the reason I actually did was, I thought is so good in a sense, shows the richness and the diversity in Britain. And I also felt that my father, who was actually member of British Indian Army, he served uh, Britain, that he would really be proud uh, having seen the son sort of uh, taking oath also in Urdu. And I got hundreds and hundreds of tweets, uh, which was abusive, you know. Uh, which basically thought this was bang out of order, that how dare I to take oath in Urdu. Uh, and many of them didn't even understand that actually I'd also done it in English. What is your problem? Yeah? And you know, if Queen Victoria can actually learn to speak Urdu, what's your problem in the 20th, 21st century, a member of parliament actually taking an oath in Urdu? And that really actually explains the difficulties. Uh, and you heard also from the debate today how other members of parliaments, how they have felt and how they've experienced and how it's had a huge impact on their life. I think you mentioned kind of abuse on social media. I mean, this has obviously been thrown into the spotlight recently with the online harms bill and some of the protections that are being called for in there. Do you think the kind of modern society we live in, you know, racism sometimes is perhaps more prominent because people can hide behind anonymity online and they feel almost a bit invincible that they can go out and abuse yourself or uh, other public figures without any fear of any kind of consequence. I do actually. I think uh, when you think about this, uh, it's almost an analogy 
but that is an analogy of a driver. Some drivers, you know, when they get behind the wheel, their whole personality almost changes. Uh, and similarly, you can see this in social media, and particularly those who use this anonymity idea, and then the real wild stuff comes out of their uh, tweets and things, which actually has effect. Uh, and I feel personally, number of things. Number one is, you know, I may have chosen to be in a public domain, being a member of parliament, and therefore maybe I should have a thick skin. And I think I probably do have that. But, you know, my staff haven't chosen to do that. They just work. But they have to then go through all some of this wild stuff as well, which is there on social media. My family hasn't chosen this. They also feel the brunt of this as well. And I think that's why there's an opportunity for our government now to actually take action, take action in a sense that uh, people can't get away with this. Uh, it does have a physical impact on people's lives. And therefore, we need to have those checks and balances. Uh, and if need be, hold the companies to account because they are responsible for those platforms. And if those platforms are being used to cause harm in a society, they should play their part as well. So I think that there is a need and I think it's an opportunity for the government to tidy up this area. Because look, it's a new area in a sense you can talk about it because last 20, 30 years, the social media is increasing more and more. But it's equally important that our legislations actually reflect uh, some of those side effects of uh, this media, this abuse of this media. And I do hope, and even in my speech, I ask that the government actually need to make sure they deal with this abuse of racism, both online and offline. You mentioned in your debate the issue of Islamophobia in the Tory party. I just wondered if the, you believe there's any degree of culpability that kind of flowed down from Number 10 and, and Downing Street in relation to this issue. I think I do. And, you know, one only has to look at our Prime Minister's record of uh, his uh, different comments against different people, you know, whether it's uh, black people or others or Muslim women. And I, if I use the Muslim woman example, which I used in my speech, that comment resulted in increase of 375% against Muslims. So there is a responsibility on leadership to be careful and be responsible with the words you use. And my second problem with this issue is because he is the prime minister, he has a responsibility to make sure the legislation matched the need of all our citizens. And there is so much evidence year after year from his own government, which is pointing to this point that the Muslim community are suffering the most on this area. Why is it that he hasn't done anything about it? And then when you look at it, you know, he's been reminded. You know, I wrote a letter to him over a year ago and this is only not the history. I mean, I've asked him questions before that. Other MPs have asked him questions before that. And over a year, he has not even bothered to reply to that letter, totally ignoring it. You know, so does that show to me that the Conservative Party or the leadership are taking seriously? The answer is no. And, you know, when they promise and they say that we will hold an independent inquiry into it, then fail to do that. 
and whatever inquiry they do hold, they fail to even consult the Muslim parliamentarians. They even fail to use the word Islamophobia. And then this inquiry also says that the Conservative Party have an institutional problem. And surely there is a problem. And they need to stop kicking this ball in the long grass and actually deal with it. And that is one of the reasons uh, my purpose in this debate was to show it to them. Look, in so many different ways, they are failing. Face up to it. You know, you've got to accept it. And then once you accept the issue that there is a problem, then you can do something about it. But if you don't even accept it, how are you going to deal with it? You know, if you can't even name the problem, how are you going to deal with it? And that's the issue. I watched the debate, and, and just for our listeners' benefit, there was quite a strong reaction, certainly on the Tory side of the chamber, when you raised this issue, particularly, I think, from one of your colleague, Greater Manchester colleagues, uh, James Daly. He was not very pleased with this at all. I mean, what did you think that kind of reaction from Tory MPs showed and demonstrated, really? Well, look, uh, I was disappointed, actually, uh, of uh, the MP James Daly from Bury North. Uh, and the reason is this, you know... He, he is failing to challenge anything that I was saying. You know, he should point out if I'm saying something wrong. I was giving facts at every stage. He didn't do any of that. Then he wants to use an example of he wanted to set up, set up an APPG on uh, taxis. But he's failing to accept that we have an APPG for Greater Manchester, which allows all Greater Manchester MPs to work together. And yet, they fail to even join that to help. And yet he wants to then accuse us not joining the APPG on taxes. And the third point is, is you know, his party uh, where the problem is. If every single other political party has accepted the definition, if this definition has been worked out by expert and by the APPG, which is of all parties, why is it? so much difficult for the Conservative Party not to accept it and not to accept it for so many years. They never even come back to the APPG say, yeah, that's our problem. They haven't even bothered to do that. So how can I take them seriously? If there's a couple of key things that you would like Boris Johnson, you know, if he were to watch that debate, what would you like to see him come back and offer to you and, and to say and, and agree to do to, to kind of allay some of your concerns? Well, I think what he needs to do is actually look at his own colleague. And that colleague basically was Steve Baker. He's a conservative member of parliament. He also made a speech in the debate as well. And you can see how Steve Baker's contribution was constructive, how he could see that there is a problem and how he can see that we need to work together. So he was approaching it with a constructive manner. And sadly for James Daly, I felt that he didn't approach it at all uh, positively. And that's not acceptable. And I hope to reach out to him because he said in the debate, you know, he sees me as a friend. As a friend, I do want to reach out to him. But I want him to at least acknowledge that these have been the failures. You know, when this report, which I talked about, itself says there's an institutionalized problem with this conservative party and Islamophobia. Well, he's got to accept this. And he's not even doing that. might not suit the narrative of those who'd like to badge up the north as one big mass of red wall, but our region is hugely diverse and as varied as the country itself. For an example of this, look no further than Lancashire, 
where Robbie McDonald, the local democracy reporter covering five boroughs of the Red Rose County, has a patch that takes in the coast, a university city and the edges of Merseyside, Pennine former mill towns and the wealthy Ribble Valley. So there's plenty to talk about as he gives us the five things we need to know about Lancashire, specifically Lancaster, West Lancashire, Ribble Valley, Rossendale and Pendle. So Robbie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's nice to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Nice to have you on. So the first thing you wanted to tell us about was the relatively unusual situation in Lancaster uh, in terms of the political control of the local council. What's, what's going on there? Yeah, that's right, Rob. It's interesting. As far as I'm aware, it's only one of two boroughs in England, perhaps the UK, where the Greens uh, are in control. I believe the other borough is Brighton. But Lancaster has been in control by the Greens and another party called the Eco-Socialists since earlier this year. Uh, there were some local elections earlier this year. And it's it, uh, it changed hands. It was previously under Labour, but now the Greens are in control. And it does make for, I think, very interesting politics. There's some smaller parties there as well. One of them is called the uh, the Morecambe Bay Independent, because Lancaster does include Morecambe. So it's a kind of multi-party uh, scene there. And personally, I think it's really interesting for that. The fact that the Greens and the eco-socialists are running Lancaster City Council, have there been any noteworthy policies that have come out of that council as a, as a result of that? Or would you not really know the difference with, with other more, sort of more mainstream parties? Well, they've declared a climate emergency. That was done previously, I believe. But what's happened this year, there's been one or two quite high-profile cases where green politics, I suppose, have, have come to the fore. One is to do with building homes in South Lancaster. There's, there was originally plans, the local plan was to build around about 3,000 homes in the South Lancaster area, which includes uh, the university, goes near the M6. But since then, the Westminster government has become involved with one of these infrastructure funding schemes and the talk is now up to 9,000 homes and uh, changes to the M6 motorway and such like. Now that brought up all those different conflicting pressures I suppose between green politics, between uh, feelings about sustainability, between local planning and national planning and the I suppose the wider tendency for growth, for economic growth and what you saw there was different parties debating the pros and cons of all this And it really was, I felt, an interesting viewing. You know, there's some very emotional speeches on all sides, from Labour, from the Greens, from eco-socialists, from Conservatives, all about growth, the future of smaller cities, transport, housing, all these kind of things. And that was a great example of that, really. It hit the headlines in in late summer. They had an extraordinary meeting to discuss all this. Eventually, the decision went through against the Green leadership to go ahead with this government infrastructure offer. It involves the county council as well. So ultimately, the Greens lost that, but it was a good illustration of how powerful green politics are in Lancaster. And there's been other cases since then to do with high-speed rail. On the surface, the Green Party would clearly support rail travel, train trains and all that kind of thing. Yet HS2 appeared to threaten southbound intercity trains to London from Lancaster. So there's all these complications and debates arising from the pros and cons of HS2 and the need for easy access to trains from Lancaster north and south. HS2 is one of those issues, isn't it, that uh, you can't really generalise across the north of England or indeed across all of Lancashire, I guess, about what people's view is on it. It's, uh, you know, for some people it's uh, a great thing and then for others it's highly controversial. So another thing you wanted to talk about was some of the towns in West Lancashire, which have, have interesting 
and diverse backstories. Interestingly, Skelmersdale, which is one of the one of one of the towns, there was a, an article that Lancashire Live did recently that had a huge number of hits on it, sort of lo- looking at the how it's uh, been hit by pockets of high deprivation, but also areas of relative prosperity. So there's a lot going on there, but also Ormskirk, which is a nearby market town. So tell us tell us a bit about those those places. Yeah, the two interesting towns just within a few miles of each other, uh, both border the Merseyside region, but they're officially in, La- in Lancashire, West Lancashire. To cut a long story short, Ormskirk is traditionally a market town, quite a wealthy market town. It's on the rail network to Liverpool. It's in the sort of Liverpool property market. It associates, it looks towards Liverpool in many ways. It's got a campus of Edgehill University, which was originally in Edgehill and Liverpool. So it's it's quite well established. It's quite a wealthy town. Ormskirk, just a few miles up the road, was a new town built in the 1960s as a new homes for, for Liverpudlians after the Second World War to escape uh, the ruins of you know the, the war, poverty. Thousands of Liverpudlians were moved out to Skelmersdale. And really, it is Liverpool in Lancashire in many, many ways, culturally, Politically, the Labour Party is very strong in uh, in Scalmersdale. It still returns a number of councillors. West Lancashire Borough is under Labour control, but there's also a smaller independent group called Our West Lancashire. There's also Conservatives and other parties as well. So again, it's an interesting dynamic between, I suppose, rich and poor, between old uh, party loyalties and new party loyalties. So again, it's all there in the mix. Moving east into the Pennines, places like Pendle and Rossendale, I get the sense that the big issues as former mill towns are things like regeneration and you know, the debate over the future of the towns and, and, and planning and sort of the way that the towns are developing. Is that is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. As you said, both sort of Pennine mill town areas, so there's a mix of old textile towns, a bit of farming. Farming is still quite significant. Also in Rossendale, which is a more southerly dale, it's closer to Greater Manchester. So it's also more of a commuter town. So yeah, in both those areas, there's a lot of talk about plans. Uh, one of the main towns in Pendle is Nelson. That's like the the, the, the borough town of Pendle is Nelson. Big talk there about uh, a Nelson master plan, about reconnecting parts of the town that have been split up by things like the M65 motorway. Town centre regeneration, like many towns, you know, it's got a surplus of shops. Uh, so there's lots of talk about getting new apartments, getting young people in. But to some degree, you know, these towns have suffered for, for decades. They have lost to some degree young people. We've seen the growth of big cities, sort of core city thinking in more recent years. So these towns have got, to some degree, they've got a challenge on their hands, but they've also got, you know, potential opportunities, the locations, closeness to the countryside. So there's many other things, but yeah, they're in a process of change. I suppose Manchester has been so dominant in recent years, recent decades, that the impact on outlying towns has been significant as well. You know, Rosendale is a little bit closer to Manchester, as I say. It has a little bit of a commuter scene. Uh, some of the mills have been redeveloped and regenerated, now apartments. There's also talk of reconnecting uh, Rosendale into the main rail and tram network in Greater Manchester. But that would include potentially using old elements of London Underground tube trains. <laughs> so it would be a light a light train system. But there's again, there's a discussion about that at the moment, if that's a good or bad thing, if that's a hand-me-down or 
that that really is suitable for, for Rosendale. And the Vibble Valley, the final area you wanted to talk about, I see online is uh, describes itself as the, the food capital of the north, which I think maybe a few other areas might might contend to that uh, that status. But uh, it's it's a wealthier mix of sort of commuter towns and villages of other sort of quite different political issues, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's similar to towns like Skipton and, and North Yorkshire or other older uh, market towns, county towns, as a castle and such like. But yeah, it's a combination of sort of farm and country and also commuter belt for places like Preston, Lancaster. So there is quite a lot of money in uh, the Ribble Valley, quite a lot of executive housing, that kind of thing. There's a big discussion there about affordable housing. Uh, that's an ongoing debate. And also there's a discussion there about the future of farming. A lot of the villages up there were old farming villages and there's probably quite a lot of livestock and dairy farming. But also those same villages, a lot of them are off the main energy network. So they don't get gas, for example, mainly gas. And one of the discussions at the moment is how do they become more self-sufficient in the future with energy? And that could include using farmland for things like ground source, pumps, green energy things. But that then prevents you growing crops and ploughing the fields. Again, there's an argument that could help livestock farming and grazing of fields where you don't disturb the field surface. So again, there's a lot of people up there debating the future, the sustainability of more wealthier villages, of rural areas. And, you know, what's their role in the future, both for Lancashire and for the UK? And I guess the the thing that all of these different areas are interested in from a political point of view, as is the case is in North Yorkshire and Cumbria, other parts of the North as well, is the future of these districts under the sort of government's plans for devolution and whether they'll continue to exist if there's a, a county deal done for Lancashire. So what, what's the latest with that? Yeah, that's right. It's changed. Uh, as you say, other counties ha- have been offered deals or are looking at deals like Cumbria has been offered a a sort of east and west deal. Lancashire local districts haven't yet been able to agree uh, a, con- a consensus for what they want. I think there's I think there's 15 boroughs or 12 boroughs in Lancashire. So there's a lot of district leaders and a lot of mayors and elected leaders who all have their opinions. And it has been hard to get an agreement. Lancashire County changed leadership earlier this year. The previous leader, I understand, was quite keen on a kind of three Lancashire deal three unitary authorities for Lancashire. I understand the current leader is less keen on that. I don't cover the county myself. That's Paul Falk who covers that, but that's the information I get. So in a way, the kind of momentum has maybe been lost a little bit, but nonetheless, Lancashire districts have to come up with some proposal. The government's keen for them to come up with a a new deal and they have to come up with some agreement. And it will be interesting to watch how that pans out because there will be winners and losers in there, you know, political leaders with with ambitions and egos and perhaps political parties as well, depending on how those boundaries are drawn. You know, in Ribble Valley, there's been a fear that a greater Blackpool could kind of swallow up places like Ribble Valley. So again, some of the boundaries and the sizes of these potential new Lancashire unity authorities need to be sort of considered more. So the political map of Lancashire could be completely uh, redrawn in the coming months and years. Well, Robbie, thank you very much. That is fascinating stuff. Uh, Robbie McDonald there, the local democracy reporter for Five Boroughs of Lancashire, telling us about the big political issues there. And we will hear more about a different area of Northern England next time. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at 
thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.